welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Welcome to another episode of Syosset Public Library's podcast, Turn the Page. I am one of your librarian hosts, Stacey, and I am here with Lisa. And today we're very excited to interview our guest author, who is Jamie Brenner. Welcome back. Yeah, hi. (laughs) Good to be here. (laughs) So we're very excited to talk about your newest book, Guilt, which it just like it just came out right I forgot the I'm so bad it's just been about 10 days I'm like actually losing track of time maybe two weeks today I'm I'm really losing track maybe two weeks yeah June June 21st I was like I knew it was the end of June but I couldn't remember the date because I keep forgetting it's July yeah I know it's crazy but it's a beautiful book about family relationships fun things that I enjoy, which is jewelry and antiques. <laughs> yes. And I, I like that it's, um, it's an interesting book because you write it in a dual timeline. Yes. Um, there's the backstories on the page as well as what's happening current day. Not that much backstory. I would say it's maybe like 70-30 in terms okay. of how much you see of the backstory, but um, basically guilt is the story of a jewelry dynasty. So many generations built up this fortune, which they created selling diamond engagement rings. Like they were the first to really sell and package the idea of love. But all the three sisters of the family have been tragically unlucky in love. So the book begins when this a strange granddaughter returns to the fold and she's an aspiring jewelry designer herself. And she's looking for this lost uh, heirloom, which she believes to be her birthright, this 30 carat pink diamonds. But what she really wants is, is a place in the family where she's been pushed out and to understand why. So the summer is sort of the uncovering of family secrets and reconnecting with, with the family from her past. Is a very, very exciting read. And I have to say, it reminded me of Blush in the sense that you talk about like a family, dynasty, family legacy. Yes. Um, It was like the jewelry business, but in Blush, it was the winery. Yes. Yeah. I'm really fascinated by family businesses that have a lot of success with one generation. Maybe the first two generations like Mm -hmm. work really hard and they're innovative and they really create something special. And then it seems to get watered down with each successive generation. And if you look at huge brands in American culture, you can kind of see that happening um, to to the corporations as they keep passing the company down. And when guilt begins, that's sort of the state the Pavlin and Company jewelry house is in. You know, they're no longer innovating. They're coasting on their name. They're coasting on. Uh, the past and it's time to reckon with that so think like a Tiffany and Co or a Cartier faced with contemporary uh, market conditions jewelry culture Um, I read an article that said that whereas it used to be for any birthday or anniversary it was just 
unquestioned tradition that women wanted and some men a piece of jewelry Mm-hmm. And now people would like rather have a big vacation or like a, something that's technology related. And that whole tradition has sort of fallen by the wayside and it's changed the way consumers buy jewelry. So it got me thinking about women and how it used to be sold to us. Like the engagement ring is this thing mm-hmm. you wait for and it's the most important piece of jewelry you'll ever have in your life. And I started thinking that the things, the pieces that I love the most are just things that I've picked up for myself along the way, you know, that aren't necessarily the most technically valuable, but they're most valuable to me in terms of memories. And that's sort of what I play with in this book. You know, what, why is jewelry so important to us? And what makes jewelry valuable? What, what is value and, you know, meaning in life? And I think we confuse diamond rings, like the symbol for love with, the actual expression of love and they're not the same thing it's interesting because like you say that and I remember when I guess like I'm I've been married for a few years now but when I was talking about engagement rings and my husband was like you know like engagement rings like this isn't like a forever thing like that like it wasn't around forever it's kind of like modern and everything but yes. like whatever I still want one <laughs> and my mom brought me to where she bring me to? Oh my God, I wish I could remember it. So we're, so for listeners, we're, um, the library is in Fayette at Long Island. So my mom took me to Americana in like, by like Roslyn, where very nice, like brand name, like fancy, I call it my fancy mall. But um, maybe she took me to, they have like a Cartier or something like that. But she goes, you have to have a diamond education and know <laughs> what it, like a good diamond is. Because right. I was like, I just want like a pretty ring that means something to me. Like, it could be, right. you know, like a, say like you know, a rock that was on like the beach that we visited a lot. Or and and like where that. did you, and where did you get engaged, Stacey? Oh, I got. I know. I know. I just want so said. much to me of how much I like shiny things in my life, and this is why. Like when I got told about your book, it was like right up my alley. I got engaged at the Museum of Natural History in the city in the room of like minerals and jewels. That's amazing. I love that. <laughs> yeah, my my husband thinks it was the funniest thing because he knows I like looking at like jewelry and like stones and one. I just find them very pretty to look at. Like. <laughs> Literally, sometimes on my free time when I'm like, I need like a mental break, I'll just like look at fancy jewelry. Like, obviously, it's going to be like super fancy and expensive. So I'm like, the idea of like colored stones like that all is mind blowing to me. And I have to be like, what does this mean? Like all the fun stuff. So I look at stones for fun. (laughs) But when we got married, I didn't even want to go into the city that when we got married, we got to get you. I didn't want to go into the city. And I was like looking at this one display they had, which... I mean, this was years ago and they completely changed that exhibit. But this one other person was also like heavily inspecting the display of this like column display case. And he's just like waiting for this woman to go. He's like, can, can this person leave? I was like, are you okay? Because I had no idea what was going <laughs> right. on. He's like, after he proposed. <laughs> and this is how bad I am. I didn't even wait for him to put the ring on me. I just took it myself and put it on. I was like, yes, I'm, this is great. Yeah, well, like, but you're totally right. It, it wasn't a thing until about 80 years ago. The De yeah. family invented it. I mean, it's completely a marketing ploy, but probably the most successful example in 
modern marketing history. Oh, completely. Yeah. Like, it's wild to me to think that, like, because, I mean, growing up, I always thought, like, yeah, this is, like, tradition. This is what happens. Two months salary. And- yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing. You know, it, 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 there's a nonfiction book that I read researching this novel called Stones, Jewelry, Obsession, and How Desire Shapes the World. And it talks about all of this, how diamonds are not inherently valuable. In fact, there was an abundance of them. You know, they say scarcity creates um, value and there were tons of diamonds and even the whole color cut clarity thing mm-hmm. was in, was a marketing creation so that if you couldn't afford a large diamond, you would say, well, mine is small, but it has great clarity. Yeah. So, but you know, it, but it has become a tradition and there's value in traditions, but it did make me think about, um, you know, how and why we do things and lose sight sort of of the the real the truth behind it and and it was just fascinating and and I feel like that kind of aggressive marketing manipulation was a perfect backdrop to a family striving to succeed and in fact it's a marketing ploy on the part of the father in this book that creates all the problems because he has this idea to drum up publicity he says um I'm I'm doing this competition and the first of my three daughters to get engaged will will be gifted the most important jewel in our collection, this 30 carat pink diamond called the electric rose. And once he sets that in motion, things are never the same for his family. So I kind of took the um, aggressive marketing De Beers did to everyone and just (laughs) concentrated it on one family and showed what happened as a result. When I read that, I was like, oh, my God. Like, he's saying, like, yeah, like, come to, you know, New York City, bring your boyfriend. Like, I, yeah. you know, and, like, it's like, at first I was kind of like, maybe, like, is it what, and then I was like, oh, no. But it's it's such a great way to set up drama with the family relationship. Like, I mean, your your books are great summaries. I personally consider you a year-round author because you even though you're going to take <laughs> place you. like with summer and have beaches it could be winter time and it's a great read still thank you but I was just like oh wow like you know you have the jewelry and you have the setting of the locations of in the city and Provincetown I'm just like I'm I'm in it for the drama of family relationships because it's so interesting the dynamic whether I mean for this book for instance between sisters yeah. parents and children it's such an interesting thing because and I think readers like that because it's either something that's similar they could relate to of like whatever's going on in their own lives or it's like, wow, like people really live like this. I thought this was just like, you know, and like soap operas or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I have found that truth is stranger than fiction. And if you read any of these nonfiction books about dynasties, whether it's the Vanderbilts or the Gettys or whomever, you know, you can't even make up things that are as outrageous as what happens in real life. So um, if I can get close, I feel like I've done a good job in the novels. But I, I really like that. So you said you did some nonfiction reading. What was your research like for this book? Well, you know, this book was, was a, there was a big change in my process because usually I like to be very hands-on, like with Blush, I spent a lot of time at a vineyard. That book is set at a family winery. Um, This book, I got the idea for the novel 
when I was in Sag Harbor doing research for my book, Drawing Home, I went to a store called Matriarch and it's a store that only sells clothes and jewelry by female designers. And the first thing I saw when I got to the store was this display of these large charms, letters and numbers that were really big and chunky and cool. And she said, oh yeah, that jewelry is Lulu Frost, the designer Lulu Frost, and that's her plaza collection. And what Lulu Frost did was when the plaza was being dismantled to be um, renovated, she collected all the fixtures on the doors, like all the markings for the rooms, letters and numbers, and turned them into charms to wear on bracelets and necklaces. And I just thought that is such a smart idea. And it's like what jewelry should be. It's like personal because it can be your initials, but it's a little piece of New York City history. And that's what started me thinking about, you know, writing a story set in the jewelry world, because I think jewelry tells our story to the world. You know, jewelry tells a narrative as much as books do. So I reached out to the designer, Lulu Frost. Her real name is Lisa Salzer. And I asked her if I could come to her studio and watch her work in researching this novel. And she was great. And she said, yes. And I was all set to do that. And this was February of 2020. So quickly, that was not going to happen. And so for the first time, this is my seventh novel. For the first time, I couldn't do any in-person research for the book. But luckily, as I mentioned, there is this amazing nonfiction book and by a woman named Aja Raiden. And it's a New York Times bestseller and it reads like a novel. And it really gave me the threads I needed to write this book. You know, it spoke about the history of marketing diamonds in, in America and how this wasn't something that was always done. It talked about um, the curse, the, the, the idea of diamonds being cursed, which is also something I'm fascinated with. Because mm-hmm. I grew up in the 80s and Elizabeth Taylor was still running around with these outrageous <laughs> diamonds and emeralds. And she was sort of the standard bearer of all I, things important jewelry. Too. And then she named her perfume White Diamond. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, oh, you know, that was like, that was the standard. I mean, she had the ultimate jewelry collection. But then, you know, I did some reading and the hope diamond is allegedly cursed and this diamond so the book stoned addresses this and it talks about how the hope diamond was originally marie antoinette stone it was called the french blue and then it disappeared and it reappeared in 1823 as the hope and everyone who's owned it has suffered misfortune and there's several examples of that there's a diamond called the black orlov 195 carat black diamond Everyone who's owned it has had either financial ruin or death or terrible family problems. So it started me thinking, you know, is there such a thing as curses, cursed stones, or is it the sort of greed and choices that it takes to acquire things like this, that is just a self-fulfilling prophecy and leads people Mm -hmm. to a bad end? So that's something I wanted to play with in the book as well. Um, And Luckily, I was able to find anything I needed without you know, being able to go to a studio. And I think it actually wouldn't have been the same book if I hadn't gone down such a heavy research path in terms of reading and not just seeing what's being done in modern day. Wow. That's interesting. Like, I know we've talked to authors in the past of like how 
the pandemic and everything have affected writing but like I have to say for me this is like the first thing to be like oh like it it's a different it would have been a possibly different book if it, you would have done your research differently but that's yes that's itch because you you brought up like the different like well-known diamonds that are you know like the hope diamond like I'm just I, every now and then I'm like these are giant like how do people wear them like it always tells yeah. me it doesn't snag on things all the time I mean, I'm like I'm imagining I mean I right now we're like my simple wedding band just because I I have a young child and I tend to knock my hand around so I don't want to ruin any nice jewelry but just thinking of how I would wear that as a ring or like jewelry and with the idea of cursed stones because you say how the electric rose is cursed I just I'm more curious how did you decide that it was going to be a pink stone and the name electric rose for it well let me think um I just this is so bad but do you remember when, when Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck were first engaged yes and she had this oh, beautiful first time. Yes. I actually think that ring more than the one she has now which is yes <laughs> And he gave her this pink diamond and I was like, wow, that's really unique. And I think it might even been heart shaped or something outrageous. I can't remember. But so yeah, I started. I it was. Yeah, I started researching pink diamonds and there was this fabulous stone up for auction at Christie's or Sotheby's called the pink star. And so I based that I based my stone on that so there there is one that exists it was auctioned for a fortune um if anyone wants to see what a 30 carat pink diamond looks like you can google pink star and that's sort of the, what i had in my mind for for the version in my book because i'm always like curious about that because you say how jewelry tends to be personal for yeah. someone i mean yeah. i know a lot of people like either to what I remember they either like get, you know, family heirlooms to yeah. be engaged to, or they have a hand in picking out what their ring's gonna look at. Like I chose what setting I wanted. I was like, husband, do whatever you want for whatever stone, but this is what I like for me. Yeah. Yeah. We, like, you know, made it together in a sense. But it I, I like to ask what you said of like, you know, jewelry is a story of a stone on a person of like what they find what could be meaningful to them. I mean, Lord knows I see enough advertisements across social media about like your astrological sign, we made this for you. And I'm just like, right. I'm always so intrigued by it. Cause I mean, I know I like jewelry, jewelry meaningful for me just cause I, it's something that even makes it deeper. Like what you said about the Lulu Frost pieces. Like I was like, Oh, right. that's really cool. Because you have, you know, it's personalized if it's like your favorite number or your initial view or one you love. And it kind of makes me wonder now in the setting of your, the world of guilt, what would like the idea of um, the, the like push presents when a woman gives birth? Because I've seen jewelry as yes. that a lot. Yeah. And it's just, I'm kind of like, I wonder like how that would play out also with that family. Yeah, like, well, I, I like how your book you kind of could think about what else they would do. Right, right. Well, that's why also, you know, setting it in Provincetown was really useful because there's so many you know, on Cape Cod is so many antique shops and estate sales. And one of the sisters in the book, she basically opts out of the whole jewelry thing and she goes to Cape Cod and she's she sells antiques. And I love the idea, which Lulu Frost did of taking something 
old and not even necessarily jewelry and repurposing it, you know? So the idea is like, look, we don't have to keep excavating like the grounds and finding more and more. Like if we look at things we already have, they're beautiful, they're meaningful. And I really have come to be fascinated by and really in love with estate jewelry. Um, and that was something I picked up, you know, the idea of things being passed down, even if it's not from your family, like it had a life before you owned it. And to me, that gives it, you know, more meaning than just something that's like one of a million that you can buy, mm -hmm. you know, produced by a mass production thing. So that was interesting. There was another book that made me think about how jewelry travels from person to person. And it's called Diving for Starfish by Cherry Burns. And she, Cherry Burns wrote a, a biography of the socialite Millicent Rogers. And Millicent Rogers had this very rare brooch. Um, it's, a, it's a starfish and like all the legs are gems and the, the legs are articulated and there's only five ever created. And she tracks down where this woman's missing starfish went and talks about secrecy in the jewelry trade and how some pieces do under, they go underground for decades. And it could, you know, you could lose track of something um, because of like a backroom deal for a piece and never see it again. And this really gave me some input in terms of the mystery and how could the pink diamond disappear? Um, you know, what types of mechanisms are in place in this industry to allow someone to hide it, sell it, move it in some way that no one, even the watching eyes of the world can't keep track of. So that was another thing that I found very interesting. Definitely. Like I just, I thought it was a really good read. And I mean, a lot of other people agree too, because before we hopped on to interview, I was like, oh, let me see like what other people have said. I usually like reading reviews bring up like a point here or there and yeah. rave reviews across the board for it thank you i love all the blurbs like um there was one i need to oh i like what publishers weekly said this beach read sparkles like a two carat diamond like it was just <laughs> they're really cute blurbs and yeah like, there was another good one from fiona davis but yeah it's, it's something fun to read i mean like summer it's gorgeous out you want to be on the beach and like reading about this because I like I would say I agree with other reviewers I could equate like this book with like you're waiting for like the next like Elon Hildebrand of like waiting for like oh like what's gonna happen now like it's light but there's moments of drama and like the secrecy that brings real life to it or like truth to it yes thank you well it was fun I mean look writing I like to write escapist books writing for me is an escape the summer that I wrote this book, I was actually living in Provincetown. So I, this is my third book set at that particular beach, but the first time I lived there full time while I was writing it. So that was interesting. Um, for example, for those of you who have read it, that scene with the dolphin rescue um, really happened. I was having a hard time concentrating as I think so many people did that summer of 2020. And I stopped working for the day. I went to the beach and there I saw all these trucks parked. And then I realized there were these, these like tarps covered like half a dozen dol dolphins just on this tarp in the parking lot. And my husband and I stayed and we watched them bring the dolphins 
to the water to, to release them. They had saved them from some situation in Wellfleet, brought them to Provincetown. And it was just such an amazing thing to witness that, you know, I wrote it into the book and I probably would never think, to, I would never think to do that if I hadn't been living there and just happened to catch that moment. That I would have thought was something like, never would have witnessed, but that's cool that like real life. Yes. So, yes. so you lived in Providence Town full time, like throughout like the winter also, or just the summer? I left in January or late December of that year. You yeah. had like a lot of seasons there. I'm sorry? I said you had a lot of seasons there, you had summer, fall, bit of winter. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, I was just thinking about how much it must empty out like in the sum in the fall and how like different it must be. Oh, it's very different. And you know, if it wasn't for the pandemic state at that time, I probably wouldn't have done that. But if and it's almost hard to remember now that there was nothing happening anywhere anyway. So it was almost <laughs> felt very natural. And it was actually very nice to be in a place that was, you know, remote and you didn't have to you know, coming from New York, where like you're just constantly bumping into people on the street or here, it was exactly what we needed. Um, but yes, it's a very different existence in the winter, but there's writers and artists who like it, especially in the winter. You know, Michael Cunningham wrote uh, in the book Land's End um, about how he spent his first winter writing a novel there. And it, it can either make you really um, sort of lost, uh, you know, mentally and emotionally because of the solitude, or it can give you exactly what you need to create. And I think a lot of artists find the latter. The distractions are gone. <laughs> yes, yes. And the distractions are gone. And, you know, the place itself is just so beautiful. You know, it gives you a lot. And it's, I've said that before. I've written books set in different beach towns, Sag Harbor and the Jersey Shore. And I'm looking at a new one for my next book, my next book, but um, you never know until you get somewhere, like how much a place is going to give to you. And Provincetown just gives so much. I thought I was just going to set the forever summer there. And I just <laughs> keep going back. I keep going back to it. But that's really cool. Cause it's kind of like, you know, a little, I don't want to say Easter egg between like the books that you featured in, but it's kind of like a nice kind of like, Oh, like, we're back here. Like, I know this place. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. So I'm, I've been doing it every other book now. And I am, I have some characters from other books sort of wandering through. So I do feel like I'm going home when I set a book there. And I think hopefully readers start to feel that way too. Yeah. I mean, I like that as a reader. I kept up for the, the masses, but I always <laughs> get like, when I'm like, Oh, like, that's really cool. And I like when you could kind of see characters from other stories because Yes. I'm I love world building and like when things could kind of like cross over I'm like oh that's so cool and then it, then I end up in a rabbit hole of rereading everything which is still fine but you brought up that you're working on uh something new is this going to be your eighth book yes yes are you able to talk about it or not really yes so I'm working on a book about a woman who built this whole perfume uh company like she's she's a famous they're called noses people who create scents and she created something that's as iconic as Chanel number no. five um 
But one thing she's always resisted is doing a, a celebrity fragrance, which became really trendy like 15 years ago, you know, like Jennifer Lopez and Sarah Jessica Parker. But yeah. she never did that. She's been a purist, except for now she's finally relented. She's meeting with this famous pop star to create her first celebrity scent. And the day of the meeting, she goes to the office and she realizes she's lost her sense of smell. Uh, and she, she decides she needs to turn to her three grown children to see who can sort of step in and, and help while she's dealing with this. And that, of course, creates the summer of drama. Well, that's something that a lot of people can identify because a lot of people with COVID lost their sense of smell. Yeah. It came back I for know. a lot of people, but a lot of people had that lingering you know, like muted sense of smell. I yeah. know. Well, those articles, you know, there were so many articles about it. And I thought it was really interesting because that's a sense we sort of take for granted. You know, we might think about losing our eyesight or hearing, but I don't think many people thought before this happened about losing your sense of smell. And apparently, you know, it's very, very uh, traumatic. And I read a lot that scent is most closely related to our memories more so either than you know a song or taste it's sense of smell so if that's taken away what does that do to you um and then i thought and how much worse would it be if that was the way you made your living so mm -hmm. that was sort of the idea of um this woman's dilemma although it's not covid related because i didn't want to write a book set in that time no, I, yeah. <laughs> I i understand not wanting to do that but that that's interesting because i mean it's not like i at one point had covid and i didn't i didn't lose sense of smell or taste but when i was like reading about stuff because i got paranoid that i was like oh my god what if i lose my sense of smell that sense and taste are related that like if you lose that yes. like it affects what when you eat something and like that to me as someone who loves food I was like I hope that never happened but I mean luckily it didn't but it's just like that's wild to think like how it could impact so much because you said it's a sense that we definitely take for granted well yeah. they said that like during COVID they said they always could tell when there was a peak because people would complain to Yankee Candle that they would they were having problems smelling the candles so they would say there's something wrong with wow. Yankee Candles and they would say oh here comes another COVID peak because all these people wow. complaining they don't even realize it I didn't even that's correlate that that's amazing <laughs> oh wow that's really crazy yeah, it is Ooh. and before we go I have a, a last question of are you reading anything or watching anything now that you would recommend to anybody? Oh my goodness. I'm always reading something. Okay. So I just read an arc that's coming in March by uh, a writer named Julie Gerstenblatt. It's called Daughters of Nantucket and it's historical and it's a really wonderful read about women finding their strength and community. And it's fantastic. That's coming early March, 2023. And um, I'm reading the biography of George Michael called oh. George Michael, a life. Ooh. And it's, it's really, it, it's a very interesting look at the industry, but also sort of a sad look at someone who touches people so much artistically, but had such a hard time, you know, being true to himself and the inherent conflict between what you have to sell and who you really are, um, which, you know, kind of goes back to the idea of value and the story we tell versus the true story and there's just so much there so I'm like halfway through it and I really like it even though I find it a little bit sad considering like how beautiful and happy his music was right yeah that's 
Interesting. I'm going to have to look into that book. Yeah. I mean, considering like one of the gotta have faith like resides in my head like all the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's 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 interesting and it's definitely a time capsule for pop music in the 80s. And um, as you know, like I like stories about career arcs and how people get where they are and like what happened along the way and especially seeing that things aren't always as easy um as they look you know that's like mm -hmm. interesting drama right there well thank you for recommending those sure and thank you so much for talking to us about your book thank yes. you for having me anytime you're always welcome back and if you ever <laughs> want to come in person you're welcome to the library too thank you so much thank you and i wish you guys happy summer reading moving forward there's a lot out there yeah i'm i'm excited though because i i i mean even though your book just came out like i, I could be at least as in charge of our staff picks i could be like hey got another one for you <laughs> I, just, I think it's a good read i really like i i'd say i'm a really big fan of your book the family dynamics like i always i'm like ooh. And like, Thank you. If, if your books ever become TV shows or movies, count me in to watching it. Oh my you know gosh. I, like, I feel like I'm advertising to like, yeah, put me in a story. I can't act. But <laughs> it's like, I feel like it could be translated very well to screen. Okay. Well, thank you. Maybe someday we'll be checking back. I just recently got to speak to Robin Carr on the Friends and Fiction podcast. You know, she wrote okay. Virgin River. Yeah. And so she was talking about how you know, she was really able to let go in terms of control and let them roll with what they needed to do creatively to adapt that. And I thought it was really interesting to hear because, um, you know, some people struggle with that or they resist it. And she says she loved seeing how sometimes they made choices that she disagreed with. And sometimes they made choices that made her say, oh, I wish I'd written it that way. <laughs> so I loved hearing her experience about having the Virgin River series adapted. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, you never know. You never know. Well, thank yeah. you so much. Yeah, thank you for coming. We're going to close this chapter of Turn the Page. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.